and we're going to be actually in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the title is One Thing Have I Desired of the Lord. I think you know where we're going with this. But if I can, Everest has prayed, and I'm, I'm good and going, and that prayer was awesome. So what I'd like to ask you to do is Mark 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn with me, though, in supplementing this to Psalm 24. It will help capture where we are going. There's at least nine different psalms that have been credited to David, and that has been with regard to his heart to be in the house of the Lord. And so obviously you can gather from that that this will be about David's heart. And um, he was so excited last teaching to um, initiate and then to basically lead the processional into Jerusalem that the ark would have a place in the tabernacle of God. Hadn't been formally in the place at all for quite some time. So Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So David is speaking prophetically of what would be his heritage, the lineage of King David to be able to, in that lineage, lineage present the son of David, Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting right now that he speaks poetically concerning the gates and the doors, these inanimate objects. And I think that that is um, fascinating to me because if the Lord would speak to an inanimate object such as a rock that would cry out, if the people did not praise the Lord and mountains that can bow down and trees that can lift their branches as arms to worship and birds that sing. Isn't that compelling? Now, we know in and of itself there's no life in those inanimate objects unless the giver of life chose for himself to animate them. And I would not doubt that with one spoken word, all of those manifestations poetically that speak of God's creation, praising him, crying out, stars singing in the night. One spoken word, and we would have an incredible orchestration. We would have a beautiful composition of song and majesty and power. And so David recognized that in these pictures that he's giving, these doors and these gates are to be open. They're to be open. I would be able to add to that. Our churches are to be open. They groan 
to be open. Those churches that have been established by the Spirit of God and home to the children of God, they groan to be filled again, rejoicing in hymns and songs and spiritual songs, the reading of the Word of God and the exposition of God's Word. I do not doubt that the chapels and cathedrals of the world groan to be what they were intended to be a place in which the habitation of God would be welcomed and the Spirit of God working mightily. So I appreciate this psalm as I also will lead you to appreciate one that is my favorite, I believe. And that is Psalm 27, verses 4 through 8, if you would take your little winkies and go over there. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. There you go, that inanimate object, that rock that just longs to cry out if it cannot have the praise of people. And now my head shall be lifted up above mine enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes. I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. And though we talk about David having the heart that follows after God, God has as well given us David's heart. We as believers that are filled by the Spirit and by our mouth have confessed the Lord Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, our hearts are one and the same. They beat just like David's did, you may say. I, I've never thought of it that way. Actually, I'm not sure if my heart does beat that way. I'm into drum beats. And I'm not sure if there's any other thing that I could say likened to David I have. So here's just a good word for you in this devotional time. When you set your heart upon the Lord, the Lord will give you his heart and it will change. If you choose not to set your heart upon the Lord nor pilgrimage to his house, you will have a heart that, much like a stone, will become inanimate as opposed to animated. Animated speaks of life. It speaks of character. It speaks of uniqueness. And we have been created unique and meant to live life and to live life abundantly. So when we see the heart of David in what I believe is just a stellar Psalm, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
I would agree that it has almost an implication of bringing your blankets and your sleeping mat and a pillow and just resting there in the Lord. And I've fallen asleep at times in the sanctuary at rest with the Lord. It's quite peaceful, actually. It's a very special time. And the Lord would say, in like manner, the person that makes the Lord's house his house, then his heart becomes God's home. And so if your home feels vacant and dusty, if it feels weary and your body system is aching and longing, there's one thing that'll satisfy it, and that's the opening up of the gates and the doors of the church. So we need to be those who pray for that. Removing myself from the arguments of legality, it's the desire of believers. And that's why you're seeing this press right now. God's impressing upon people that long to be there. And in some congregations in which the pastors have that unction, the, the mulberry trees, the leaves have shivered and shaken, and there's a blowing and a stirring so some may not be able to, guided by conscience and the Spirit, but nevertheless a deep longing. We remain in intercession. Those that are going forth, they by the conscience that God has given to them and the Spirit that has motivated them, endeavoring to comply with the laws that are over them, they're going forward. Why? One thing have they desired, and that they will seek after, that they, as a body, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, they'll say goodbye after the service, but their desire is to be there until the forever, seemingly, of our heart here in the temple of God gives way to the transition in which eternity is open before us. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 95. So head on over to 95, quite a distance away. We always try to get there quick. But sometimes our fingers just don't work the pages very well. So 95, if you're there, pick it up in verse 6. One of the motivations that we discover penned as well. O come, let us worship and bow down. I love the plurality there. Singularly, I must have that desire. But when my desire is linked with others who in their singularity are coming for the purpose of worshiping God, it puts us into that plurality, us, we, the body of Christ. And to do what? Bow down. It feels so good to bow down. Well, as you get older, probably less good. <laughs> but it does, as an act of tribute, as an overt act of worship, feel so good to bow the head, to bend the knee. At some point in time when these body parts all work really well, like they do for the young, that's actually going to be our calisthenics in heaven. Not disputing, some of you might be runners and walkers, However that works out, flyers don't know. But one of our calisthenics will be 
out of amazement before God is to bow our heads, bend our knees, stand up, sit before the Lord. And so I just appreciate that. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pastor, the sheep of his hand. Love that. That's where that concludes as far as putting a preface on tonight's teaching. It's the heart of a worshiper, which David most certainly was, and that by lineage, we too as well are. And though there's a stall, it doesn't prohibit us from being worshipers in residence. You know, this is the place that God has given to us, our homes. So practice in your homes what God says is a practicum in the house of God, which is a practicum for heaven. It's a, what we would call in stage language, a dress re rehearsal. We address God in the robe of his righteousness and we honor him in the expression of worship. And it's a combination of so many facets of things that are both mentioned symbolically in the Bible, but that are also in that wonderfully beautiful hidden realm of the spirit. And the way that we obtain eyes, that better than 2020 vision on the things of God, is to be in the place in which we get our eyes corrected regularly. You know, I have eyes right now that are requiring different prescriptions for my glasses, and I can feel it depending on the light. But God says, I can do something for you, though, in that area of your spirit in which there is blindness. There is a murkiness. Come to me. I'll open up your eyes in the spirit. Open up the word. I'll clarify things concerning vision that I'm giving. Vision that I have given to you. One is the past. The other is the present. And the other right now is the motivational which presents itself forward into eternity. God loves visionaries, not stagnators or procrastinators, but visionaries in the things of the Spirit. So chapter 7 is now where the processional that David had put his whole heart into is now coming into a realization that is awesome. Because what has happened right now in this processional, you know, he was worshiping in a, in a garment of praise. He had an ephod on. He was a king and minister in that time, a praise worshiper. And he broke into a symbolic dance. It was received by the people despised by one. That person remained barren the rest of her life. That was his first wife. And she despised what he was doing in being honorable before the Lord. 
we will have despising going on as people move to worship the Lord. They will be barren because of it. It is a fact. When God's people display his heart and they are entering into the processional to return, be it in the liberty and freedom that the Spirit of God has given, be it in the allowance in which they have the protocols established to please the law that they are not appeasing, but simply in humility honoring. Those who look at that and say, well, you can never do that again, that's no longer norm. They are inviting upon themselves barrenness, not able to bear fruit in their life. Oh, they might be able to count a few bananas on their counter, take a bite out of an apple, but in terms of the taste of the spiritual fruit that's given by the Spirit, barren. And I do believe that when we are barren of the fruit of the Spirit, manifested in love, it's a dry time. And it's so unnecessary. We want to be those who, in the processional for the return to the house of God, when those doors are open, the gates are wide, the invitation is out and we pray people in for the harvest that God's heart is indeed set for. So David comes in and as he has delivered gifts to the people throughout his kingdom, there were raisin cakes and there was wine there was meat and bread. And it says that he distributed those to every household. That shows you the generosity of one who represents the king who is yet to come in David's lineage, but one who has in fact arrived in our time. As we look back, Jesus made it. And so how did he distribute something better than cakes of raisin and bread and wine and meat. How? The giving of the Holy Spirit. On Sunday, that's going to be the celebration of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, in which the Holy Spirit became in like ways, but even better, enriching far greater than David could to the households of his kingdom, gifts that he distributed to each one of us personally and then corporately. Awesome. So it came to pass in verse 1 of chapter 7 when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. So he's in his house and at a time in which the subduing of the enemies has taken place and he is enjoying a time of rest. So homes are intended to have rest. The most restful homes are those who rest in the Lord. It doesn't mean that there aren't tensions. doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. But what's available to those whose home is the Lord and who long to be in the house of God, there's a rest from our enemy. 
homes that do not have the spiritual indwelling of God, far more are they at unrest, wondering what to do. How do I break out of this prison? We all feel trapped at times. But when David right now has found himself truly at rest from physical enemies, we can find ourselves at rest from spiritual enemies in our devotional times, in our morning prayers, in the blessings that we render to the Lord at our meal times. I would encourage all of us, if we've drifted from that, to make family dinners, breakfasts, and lunches a time in which God is invoked. Lord, thank you for the provision on my table. Well, I don't have any provision. Lord, thank you for my table. Well, I don't have a table. Lord, <laughs> thank you for the floor that's holding me up. Thank the Lord for something that in what you lack, beyond what you ever could request or hope for, he knows your needs and he can make supply. I don't know how he does it. I just know that he does. And so David at rest right now from all the enemies in verse 2, and the king said to Nathan, this is the first time that we are running into Nathan, he is a prophet. Gad has previously been the one who has been his counselor. And it is interesting because David, in one regard, didn't need a counselor. We see direct communique from God to David's ear, to his heart. And many of his decisions were made on that premise alone. But David does have one that has been appointed, maybe as an accountability partner. But also in what the Lord's showing is a man differently gifted than David, uniquely sensitive to the things of the Spirit that have a place for when David needs to have a perspective different than his own. And these are the things that all of us at times get challenged by. Perspectives of other people different from our own and our differences to them equally as challenging. Why does God allow that to happen? It doesn't necessarily mean hearts that are different. It means perspectives that have experiences linked uniquely. And God's trying to bring together those unique experiences to refine us and to make certain that the decisions that we make, the steps that we take, are so ordered by the Lord. We still have a long way to go with regard to the transaction of that. It requires great patience. It requires attentive ears. It requires precision with language. It requires repentance from tempers. All of these things. David's at rest. Nathan has been introduced. He says to David, Nathan will, but David is saying, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside Tent curtains. The ark is actually in a place precisely where God had appointed Moses to put the ark. Within the Holy of Holies, one sector of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, by the way, was very simple. Something like 70 feet wide, 100 feet in length. 
really out of what you would call earthy stuff. And this curtain would represent that which you could not pass by. Only the high priest could once a year. God dwelt in this tabernacle behind the curtains. It's a picture that in order for the Jews to be able to see the true dwelling and glory of God, I mean up close and personal, the curtains would have to be torn down. And they were. On the day that Jesus died, the curtains were torn down. And God was saying in that temple experience, which was the refined, glorious version of the tabernacle, access to me is granted. That's why one of the things that excites us about being believers is that access to God is granted. Will we take it? There are some things that we would rather access more than God. But if God says, come and take me, <laughs> come and take me, <laughs> where some people have their attitudes <laughs> because, because we're, we're chafing at the restrictive living scenario that we've been put into. And when God was saying that, not in that voice, but come and get me, the Jewish people at that time had been in a restricted religion that could not please them and really oppress them. It was never intended to, but the greater had come. Jesus came with the message of the gospel. In one sense, David, in the type of of Jesus as a king, he sees down the line and he wants the glory of God really just dynamically available to the people of God. He wants to make a statement. So as Nathan again has been drawn to the lips of David, David being able to say the things that have been on his heart. Nathan said to the king, verse 3, Go, do all that is in your heart for me, or for the Lord is with you. So if that's the first time we've heard of Nathan giving a approval to what has been put on David's heart. Good job, Nathan, for proving the heart of David concerning what he could do. We will see that there will be a decision rendered by God on the merit of seeing things differently than David does. The only difference is the whom gets to build it, not the can it be built. And we know that David has been very precise in terms of hearing from the Lord where he was to go for seven and a half years, when he was to have the kingdom given to him, the place that was put on his heart, which is what we call today Jerusalem, the city of David. And in kind of just hidden space right now, a hill that he would purchase, land that he would acquisition, to put the tabernacle on that later 
his son Solomon would erect this glorious temple. It is what David wants to do. And we find that out as he, in stating this, and given a nod of approval from Nathan, must be just excited. You know, the thing about visionaries is that they see things in the hidden realm. And when it becomes translated in the temporal realm, it has so many teasing thoughts, so many varietal expressions, facets like a gem. We today would call them the poets and the artists, the musicians, I believe. I believe they acclimate easy towards that prophetic, you know, gifting. And David was a prophet. He spoke in the Spirit in many of his psalms. So he being in agreement with Nathan, Nathan being in agreement with him, they be agreed. Therefore, they can walk together. Amos 3.3, 3, I believe, says that how can two that are not agreed be walking together? That was a paraphrase. So God is into a agreeability with ultimately what he wants to do and how he wants to do it and when he wants to do it. God loves agreeability, disagreeability, not good because disagreeability leads to irritability and irritability leads to wrath, a temper that gets put out of check, a heart that no longer is malleable. We have seen the limitations of people's patience being pressed in which in fighting depression and suppression, they are expressing things in the emotional. It happens. That should be a great concern ultimately to those who govern over the people. David gave cakes of raisin and meat and wine, bread to his people, rewarding them. The attempts of a government such as ours, which is big, but a populace much bigger than what David did, you can never satisfy the groanings of a discontented people. Whether it's their fault or not, it cannot be satisfied. And the government will have to come to terms with the fact, you know what, we've tried it. We've tried bonuses. We've tried giveaways. We've tried lightening up here and restricting things there. The people can't be satisfied. You know what, the people never will be satisfied. If it is something that they are trying to do in the temporal area of a man's life, but choking the spiritual liberty and freedom that a man desires, that a woman has a passion for. It can never be satisfied. Nathan and David, they be agreed in a desire to bow the head and to bend the knee and to put the resources of the government to use for what? The houses of God. We are one nation under God, but it is interesting. 
in so declaring that, we've also protected the interests of religion, which doesn't necessarily mean it's Christianity, which doesn't necessarily mean that we will all be agreed, even if the government says, yeah, but it's religion, isn't it? No. No, we know that with certainty, the establishment of that motto, which is actually fairly recent when it was, one nation under God, it spoke the heart of the forefathers that realized they were actually told how to worship God back in England. We're kind of feeling what they felt back then. And it makes you want to run into the open to find a place where the government will not limit you on sincere worship of the living God, David's God, our God, the God of Israel. So these guys are in agreement. Government can never satisfy. David was able to because he's a picture. He's a picture of our great king. That's what the Psalms was about. Our great shepherd. He can satisfy every single soul on this planet, let alone the United States of America. All they need to have is a desire to be satisfied by him and by him alone. You want to talk about the influence that we could have? You want to talk about literally the supernatural power that God would give if a nation said, I want to live for you. A nation saying, I want to live for you, no longer for myself, no longer in idolatry, no longer in murderous justifications and areas of this false religion, planned parenthood. David, Nathan, being agreed. What an awesome picture that is. And so it happened in verse 6 that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? Now, depending on the, the inflection, it could have a negative connotation. I don't believe that that is, in fact, where it's at at all. I think that it's a deep sigh of blessing that David has in this season of rest put his mind to good use and desires to build something very special for God. It's not read in this context of, would you dare to desire to build me a house? Because very often the interrogative, the questions they can be perceived as provocations, challenges. But I think at times we miss the heart of God when he ponders what a man in a vision, in an expression, would say, this is what I want to do. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? Now, Nathan is on dispatch. It takes time. They were agreed. They separate their own ways. David probably has his drafting paper out. Nathan is probably whistling a happy tune. And in this connection right now, he's having to take pause. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I 
brought the children of Israel up from Egypt even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Again, the inflection makes all the difference. If you choose to believe that God is scolding both Nathan and David for this, that's how you'll see God. But God's just basically saying, huh, it's not that he never thought about it. It's that he has no need of anything. So when other men think about God in the opportunity of bringing something special that brings greater glory to him, it's kind of like, wow, you really think about me in that regard. I've never voiced it to anybody, only the tabernacle to construct. Other than that, I am a God with great contentment, exceedingly great joy, grace that is abounding, blessings that are flowing. And I just think that that's awesome the way it's being presented. Whenever I have moved in verse 7, <coughs> about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God again just saying, I have no need, but I hear the heart of a man who desires to express the need of his heart. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. God's just reaffirming everything in this guy that I saw before he was even born is now just being expressed in his time of cogitation, of rest. He's contemplating me. He's going really deep cognitively for me. His spirit is soaring. He's found a building buddy, Nathan. But Nathan has to articulate this to David because it is through Nathan that God's going to speak. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I'm the one that did it, David. And you know it well. And by the way, David never did forget it. He was able to make that recitation with Michael, who was in contention, because he was worshiping the Lord in the procession to bring the tabernacle in, and he was leading the minstrels as a music minister, dancing before the Lord with all of his might, dignified. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Does that sound like a scolding? Sounds like a list of awards that are coming to David because of the greatness and the goodness of God. Moreover, I will appoint a place he says, for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Verse 11, 
since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Well, if that doesn't settle the question, was God angry? Did he think that David was making a boast that he ought not? This is a huge compliment to David. If God visited you tonight and said, I know that you want to build a house and you want to do it for me, but would you allow me to build it for you? Well, there's a couple of things that that would imply. Ooh, great. No work. Investment, all gods. But it also could imply your vision is so right. But the timing is not yet, according to my will. I've got to do something else with regard to that. And so he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So this is kind of interesting because we found out in chapter 5, verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. And we already know that he married six people there. He already had kids. He's got more kids. I think that historically he will have between 18 and 19 children. Lots of wives, lots of other women. Lawfully for him but never God's heart that he find himself complicating his life in such a way. Isn't it interesting how God can separate what a man ultimately complicates his life with and yet is able to complement a man regardless? We complicate our life and sometimes become so busy we get no rest and all God's trying to do is to break through and say, Listen to me, what I'm going to do for you. Oh, in spite of the complications of your life, I love you and I gave you life. I gave you authority. I gave you fame and fortune. I gave you provision, much bounty. But this is what even more so I want to do for you. I'm going to make your lineage exceedingly blessed. And that's difficult for us because we always make in our smaller variation of that domestically, you know, we count between one, two, four, six. Some people have 10 kids more. Big families, big responsibilities, big blessings. But God is saying to all of us that even with the complications of that, there's a generation yet to come from the seed of what I planted in the work that is represented by you, David. And what? A woman. Is she on the scene yet? Not yet. We'll find out about her. Because out of all these kids, there's only going to be one that God already knows who he is going to raise up extraordinarily. And interestingly enough, you will think, as many of us do, wow, by what qualification? especially in that relationship, which again is the manifestation of the grace of God. 
By grace you have been saved. It's not a result of works that any one of us can boast. It's the free gift of God. And so God just chooses to do extraordinary things through abnormalities and complications because he still looks at the heart and says, I can do something with that heart. Oh, you're going to have a lot to do with your complicated life. But I can help you out there too if you trust me in it. And so in the building of the house, he says in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. So we already know it's not a daughter coming. It's going to be a son. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God already knows how this son is going to come into being. This again is remarkable. Not disqualified because of something that David will do that is sin, but actually quite apart from that, dismissing. Because the man that is so noted as one who follows after God's heart will in a season of waiting and anguish and regret, repent and confess. And God will bless him after a time in which there will be a consequence. And that lineage also of the 18 kids, there's indeed going to be a challenge in his household. But remember, we have to separate the challenges that are within our household from the faithfulness of God who governs us in our households. But this just tells you God knows what's coming. He knows what things even right now are contrary to his will, that we may find ourselves getting drafted into choosing willfully, wrongly to do, apart from pleasing his heart. But when we look at the fullness of God and the manner by which he's choosing to show his love and the fact that all of this points to one who is the picture the ideal David, but most importantly, the identifiable God with humanity who knows what we go through. And it's not perfect and it's not pretty, but he's perfecting us and he's the one that's making us beautiful. Great picture. To establish the throne of his kingdom forever, this guy that's going to come on the scene, Ultimately, a son will lead in a lineage, a processional. It's going to take some turns. Left and right hand turns. It's actually going to be for a season. You're not going to see it, but very discouraging for the nation. But in the end, the one whom ultimately I deliver through your seed is going to be the one who you are picturing now, David, only greater, the greater than David, my son, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, this is not Jesus. Now we're back to the short term. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. He made an extraordinary judgment against Saul because of his blasphemy, his 
continued willful acts of disobeying God. And so there's a picture in this of a judgment that was imposed upon him. Well, I thought you said that if people mess up, that, you know, forgiven, forgotten, and restoration. Yes, that's true. If, in fact, those people have asked to be forgiven, then God will forget, and he will demonstrate his faithfulness. This indicates that in a time in which there's disobedience, there will be correction from the blows of men. But when he self-corrects, in other words, comes to term with with his errors, sees the errors of his ways, he's going to be projecting a different experience, writing words of wisdom, and still picturing a type of a kingdom that truly was intended to show splendor and peace and no adversaries on any side at all. My mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Somehow, it almost has the appearance that Nathan getting ready to tuck himself into bed gets, again, dictation from God. And he just turns right around and receives it and then orates it. And I don't know how, obviously, a man could remember all of that, which means he either learned dictation or that is an endowment in which he speaks the oracles of God because of the Spirit of God, which, by the way, is a, is a lifestyle of living for the Lord and being used by the Lord. And it is in faith. I sure hope I say the right thing. I so desire for God to be in that which I'm declaring. I want it to be effective. These are the things that get expressed by faith, which has in and of itself the reward after the fact, not necessarily in the faith. It's after the fact of being in the faith. And it can create a lot of tension. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. The rest of this is David's thanksgiving to God. And therefore, because it is rather to be cherished and timely, we'll conclude there. On the mid-morning studies, you know, the 10 a.m. spot, I really do try to satisfy the complete teaching of a chapter and though at times that's my goal here, I think it's sufficient to allow this to rest and for you to be given an opportunity to rest and to rejoice. And then to take initiative to be praying, oh Lord, that, that Psalm 27, that's my Psalm. This one thing have I desired. I didn't really know how much I desired it until I lost it. Do you realize that that also can be a motivation for changing the way we once maybe felt about church and took it for granted? Is by having a imposed quarantine. You don't know what you got till it's gone, as a former contemporary song once was penned.
Not a great song, a catchy song, but a verse that speaks truth. You do not know what you have until it's gone. The church isn't gone, folks. We're here. The house of the Lord is empty for a season, but God's not gone from it. He's both there, delighting in the time in which, in time, the law will have its place to be put in its place. Did you know that? God is sovereign. He can take the law that's in place and he can put the law in its place. He's God. He can do that. He's the law giver. Far more, though, is he presenting himself as the sovereign, meaning that decisions that people make in authority aren't necessarily the final decision. It's just the comma, the semicolon, the dot, 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 until God comes in and speaks a word and says, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. The questions that God posed to David were, in my opinion, the ponderings of God saying, that's my boy. That's, that's awesome. Not questioning the heart of David, but marveling via the question, really? There's a man that right now, contemporarily, wants to build me a house that I've never asked for? Awesome! I'm going to build him a house that he never asked for. He's wanting it for me, but I'm going to do it for him. Isn't that extraordinary about God? It's extraordinary about God. So allow God to be extraordinary in your ordinary world. But then maybe for you, you can say, I don't want it to simply just be ordinary. Then allow it to be supernatural by inviting the Spirit of God into your situation, more deeply into your heart, and that your determination is to say to God, Lord, open up the doors, open up the gates that give you praise, that the rocks might cry out, that one thing have I desired from the Lord that I will seek, to be in the house of the Lord forever, to inquire. See, God asks the question admirably. We get to ask the questions deeply of God, reverently, that we might have answers, that we might hear from the exposition of the word, truth that we need in our lives.